Welcome to this episode of the Culture and Inequality Podcast, brought to you by our Transnational Teaching Podcast Collective. My name is Simon Stewart. I'm a reader in sociology at the University of Portsmouth, UK, where I'm also director of the Centre of European and International Studies and the principal investigator on a new 18-month project on migrant homelessness during COVID-19. Today, I'm going to be presenting in this podcast on the topic of evaluative judgments, fields, value, and time. So what got me interested in this topic? Well, my approach to sociology often leads me to the edges of the discipline, to areas that sociology perhaps has a tendency to neglect. I'm going to be talking about my research interests on how the evaluative judgments that we make, ethical and aesthetic, play out in the moment, and over time. These topics, I think, relate to broader metaphysical questions about value and meaning, as well as to societal issues and cultural inequalities. And why is this important? Well, quite simply, questions of value matter. As John Fakit says, we live, breathe, and excrete values. No aspect of human life is unrelated to values, valuations, and validations. So I've selected four key readings for you to look at alongside this podcast. And there are other readings listed too. Three of the readings are pieces that I've written. The first is taken from the forthcoming up the, uh, second edition of the Blackwell Encyclopedia of Sociology, edited by George Ritzer and Chris Rojek. And this piece is called Evaluative Judgments, and it provides a summary of the debate. It's a short and very accessible piece. The second piece is called Making Evaluative Judgments and Sometimes Making Money, Independent Publishing in the 21st Century. And in this piece, and in the piece that follows, I, I, I'm relating the findings of my empirical research on evaluative judgments. And here I'm looking at the basis on which independent literary publishers make their judgments about which books they want to publish. In the, in the third piece, Celebrity Capital, Field-Specific Aesthetic Criteria and the Status of Cultural Objects, the case of Marston Anonymous published in the European Journal of Cultural Studies, I look at the various modes of evaluative judgments that are, that, that are apparent in critical reviews of a film called Marston Anonymous that starred Bob Dylan and he was the co-writer of the script for the film which was critically panned. But there's more to it than that if we look closely at the critical reviews and the evaluative judgments therein. The final piece, the fourth piece that I've listed as a key reading, I think is one of the best pieces on aesthetic value in recent years. It's by Janet Wolfe and it's called Groundless Beauty, Feminism and the Aesthetics of Uncertainty, published in Feminist Theory, in the Feminist Theory Journal. And Wolf draws attention to how we might be able to return to matters of aesthetic value and even to the notion of beauty while still taking on board feminist critiques of the concept of beauty, which is patriarchal and has up until now been laden with ideolog ideological content. The sociologists, I think, have had a tendency to put aside questions of value, leaving them to other disciplines. There are many reasons for this, but I'm going to start off with two, or just identify, focus on two key reasons. The first, I think, is that sociology is still a relatively young discipline, and in attempts to gain scientific legitimacy and work in accordance with what the classical social theorist Max Weber defined as value freedom, sociologists have been urged to exclude value judgments from their observations. Even though, as Andrew Sayer, the sociologist, points out, the vast majority of sociological research is actually, if you look closely, laden with normative assumptions. A second reason is that sociology has always been something of an underdog discipline, which is part of its charm. A great, 
a great number of social pieces of sociological research are about marginalized groups and inherent in the discipline is a fear of elitism and reproducing the status quo if we are to account for why something might be considered to be better than something else so when we're looking at questions of value what's good and what's bad there's a there's, there's a fear of cultural conservatism. So what is the sociology of evaluative judgments? Well, for me, quite simply, it has its focus on how we appraise things, whether aesthetically or ethically. Looking at it historically, the sociology of evaluative judgments, as far as I can see, developed as a running critique of the thesis of aesthetic autonomy as exemplified by the philosopher Immanuel Kant's notion that there can be such a thing as universally valid aesthetic judgments and that these judgments stake a claim to a priori validity that such judgments exist outside of time and are universally valid. But in, in contrast, sociological work on evaluative judgments takes a more critical perspective. It highlights the social historical context of judgments and brings art and aesthetics down to earth. And as you'll have seen in other and heard in other podcasts, in other readings, as Bourdieu would say, our judgments are often a meeting of our habitus and the field in which we are immersed. So sociology, uh, up to now, sociology of evaluative judgments has played a critical role in bringing aesthetics down to earth. But now I think sociologists are also trying to do more and that's going to be the focus of this podcast. So my research is on the sociology of taste and aesthetic value. I'm carrying out theoretical and empirical work focusing on the aesthetic, ethical and temporal dimensions of evaluative judgments. I'm exploring why and on what basis we like what we like. I'm also interested in questions of how cultural value accrues over time how it dis dissipates over time so how it how it grows and disappears over time and underpinning my approach is a return to a focus on the interaction between the individual and the cultural object in the evaluation of culture so this is inspired very much by Antoine Henian's approach where he argues that much sociology of taste has treated cultural objects as mere symbols in a game of power. And, um, and, the, and the challenge is to reintroduce the cultural object and its dynamic in the interaction between individuals and objects as they make their judgments. So, as I say, sociology of evaluative judgments has its roots really in a critique of, of Kant. And Immanuel Kant distinguishes between aesthetic judgments and corporeal tastes, which gratify the senses. He identifies three types of delight. Delight in the agreeable, in the good and the beautiful. But, according to Kant, of these three kinds of delight, um, only the taste in the beautiful might be said to be disinterested and totally free, a free delight. So the agreeable is more concerned with gratifying the senses. The good is more about utility, whether moral or for serving a particular purpose. But taste, he argues, is the faculty of estimating an object or a mode of representation by means of delight or aversion apart from any interest. So for, for Kant, aesthetic delight is disinterested, he says. And he argues that there can be universally valid aesthetic judgments. Bourdieu makes a significant contribution to the sociology of aesthetics with his critique of, what, what, um, of natural taste or of this Kantian notion of aesthetics being disinterested. He argues that actually aesthetics, an aesthetic way of viewing the world is not universal. It's only available to a small number of people who have been able to cultivate what he calls an aesthetic disposition, the ability to perceive objects in terms of their form rather than function. And this ability 
to perceive the world aesthetically is unequally distributed in society. It's determined in great part by social origin and education by the levels of these that we possess. In other words, cultural capital that we have gained through our background and through where we've been educated. It's determined also by freedom from economic necessity, having the time freed up to be able to pursue aesthetic pursuits. And it's also bound up and determined by an explicit or implicit awareness of what's going on in a specific cultural field. So your ability to aesthetically understand the visual arts or cinema depends on having had the time to develop an awareness of what is going on in that specific field. So actually, far from being um, a, a universal disposition, it's actually a rare and distinctive disposition. Another critique from sociology of the notion of beauty as this free delight is that beauty has, in the history of Western art, long been conflated with representations of women, especially the nude, and with ideologies of gender. So Janet Wolfe draws attention to how feminist historians and feminist sociologists have drawn have developed a calophobia, a hatred of and mistrust of beauty, and this is perhaps um, typified by Laura Mulvey, the film who, who developed an approach to film, uh, whereby she said that it is said that analysing pleasure or beauty destroys it. Well, that is the intention of her article. So sociology and sociological approaches to evaluative judgments, they help us to understand the power dynamics and the inequalities involved in aesthetic appraisal. But where do we go from there? Can sociology and sociologists not tell us more about the important matters of how we evaluate and what we value? Well, I'm going to turn to some of the recent sociological approaches to a sociology of evaluative judgments, to sociology of aesthetic value, and so on. And first of all, I'm going to talk about Janet Wolfe. And as I say, I've put forward one of Janet Wolfe's readings for you to peruse. She develops a post-critical aesthetics, which she argues is necessary after the critiques of postmodernism, feminism and post-colonial theory have challenged our certainties about a single standard of what is good and what is beautiful. She proposes that it should be possible to have a return to beauty. It should be possible to make aesthetic judgments about beautiful bodies, about beautiful compositions. And the way she does this is not to turn back to a universalism, nor does she argue that everything is relative, then it's all down to the individual. So instead, she seeks to, to develop a discourse of beauty, but without falling back on universal values. So she borrows from Zygmunt Bauman's grounding of morality in uncertainty. So we can nevertheless return to questions of aesthetics and beauty by grounding it in uncertainty, aware that there is no universal position anymore. But nevertheless, we can, through reason dialogue, come to some agreements about what we consider to be good and what we consider to be beautiful. Because after all, curators, critics, artists, galleries, they still have to justify their evaluations in aesthetic terms. This is something that people do anyway in various professional contexts. And Wolf's interest in this topic came about when she was curating the work of a forgotten um, artist, Kathleen McHenry. She put on, she, first of all, she displayed a few of McHenry's paintings. Then eventually she put on an exhibition of her work. And this was part of a feminist project of reclaiming um, artists, uh, bringing them to the prominence again, artists who have been neglected, who have been pushed out by the dominant masculine aesthetics of post-Cubism in the 20th century. But Wolf was plagued by an interesting question. Okay, beyond this, beyond this feminist project, is McHenry's work any good? 
She ends up concluding that it was rather good, but it brought her to this question of the complex intersection between the political positions we adopt, our social, the social historical context, our habitus, our background, and so on, and questions of aesthetic judgment that actually consider the objects themselves, the cultural objects themselves. So in other words, in this instance, McKenna's paintings, are they any good? So Wolfe seeks to explore aesthetic judgment as a reasoned outcome of dialogue and communication on the basis of community. So she puts forward and proposes a community model of aesthetic judgment, which where, whereby we can make our claims within the context of communities on the basis of dialogue and drawing attention to some of the old language of aesthetics, looking at form and colour and, and the content of work, but nevertheless aware of the social historical framing of these judgments. So I think Wolf offers a very good way forward. Another social theorist who, who makes a significant contribution is Austin Harrington. He argues that sociology and social theory can mediate between value distanciation approaches, you know, the ones I've talked about where you're meant to be value neutral in Weberian terms, and ones that are more value affirmative, where you're more confident in saying um, what is good, what is bad, and this, this being a great artist or that being a great artist. So one way of doing this, Harrington argues, is to assume equality between different categories of cultural production. So this means that we abandon discredited notions of high or low culture or high or low categories of cultural production. So there's no point in saying, uh, you know, what is better, a Shakespeare play or a reality television program. There's no point in comparing a Beethoven symphony to a pop song because these are from different categories of cultural production. And then you fall into an old elitist trap of considering there to be high or low categories. But instead, he argues that we can and we should be able to assess the qualities and merits of individual objects of the same category of cultural production. So, for example, we can compare one pop song to another, especially if they're in the same genre. We can look at NWA's Straight Out of Compton album and compare it to Just Ice's Back to the Old School. We can look at Albert Camus' French existential, existentialist novel, The Outsider, and we can compare it to an object from the same category of cultural production, Jean-Paul Sartre's novel, The Age of Reason. And this is important. We should be able to compare one thing with another and make our judgments. After all, this is something that we do anyway. And Harrington says that if no individual cultural object could be judged as being higher or lower in aesthetic value than another, then there will be no basis for the use of positive predicates in ordinary language, such as elegant, brilliant, inspiring, in distinction to the negative predicates such as mediocre, dull, average. It would follow from this that any person could produce any object which no other person could criticise or even praise. So now I'm going to move on to my approach to evaluative judgments. So how would I characterise my approach? Well, I'm going to start by talking about how it came about. I started getting interested in evaluative judgments at a more micro level, thinking about how we might study them. So in a, one of my earlier pieces, I argued that the prickly matter of value judgment is an everyday practice, an active practice, dependent on a number of dynamic contextual factors. It is important to find ways of theorizing our day-to-day -day interactions with cultural objects through which our judgments, individual and collective, are formulated and through which we decide what is to be prized. So it's a so I'm starting off here with a fairly micro level approach, thinking about the fact that 
on the one hand, you know, we we emerge on, on, in a particular circumstance with our with our you know with our own levels of cultural capital, our habitus or whatever we we come with. But then we when we engage with things, there are a number of other dynamic contextual factors that we need to think about when we're engaging with cultural objects. And also, I'm drawing attention to how we we make judgments on our own, but we also make judgments with and against others. So when I'm considering these micro-processes, the, the ways in which we, in everyday contexts, make evaluative judgments, one of the dynamics of the evaluative moment that I've considered is the presence of other people and the influence that they bear. All too often, the sociology of taste is conducted by means of surveys and asks people about what they like, what particular piece of music they like, what genres they like. But there's very little about how these judgments are formulated with and against other people. So here I'm talking about the influences of others as people recommend things, as people take on board the judgments from peer to peer, father to son, mother to daughter, friend to friend, colleague to colleague, boss to worker, worker to boss, and so on. So in it's very much a relational process. You know, some people have more authority or legitimacy in the judgments they make or more power even over others but nevertheless we have to consider the ways in which in these everyday contexts judgments are formulated so therefore we consider the influence of other people and we can consider the number of other people things like that go back here to the work of classical social theorist George Zimmel the, you know how different it is when we're evaluating or discussing and appraising something when we're with just one other person, how that changes when there are three of us, when a third person, when it goes from a dyad to a triad, or how our appraisal of a band or of a piece of music changes when we're suddenly immersed in the ecstasy of a crowd or at a festival. So how do our judgments change and transform depending on who we're with and the number of people that we're with? And in my research on independent literary publishers, one of the readings that I've put forward for you to read, I talk about the collaborative formation of evaluative judgments, which for the publishers is central to the process of deciding which books they are going to publish. And in the 47 interviews that I conducted, there were 39 references to some form of collaborative decision making. So, of course, there were some uh, publishers who made all the decisions themselves, especially when they ran very small presses. However, most of the publishers indicated a need to get at least a second opinion when they're making judgments about what's a good book to publish or what's not. Um, so one one says often I sent you know I'd sent my my decisions to my fellow director and say look am I wrong here and nine times out of ten he backs my judgment. Um, so there are various forms of community or collectively formed, institutionalized decision-making processes in place. Um, this is especially apparent in the bigger-sized independent presses, which have formalized the process considerably. And sometimes the ways in which they came together to form their judgments about a book's reception in the marketplace, they were able to uh, to use the, the, the number of them to, 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 to try and gauge the extent to which this book would be well received in the marketplace. So here's one quote. In a group of eight of us, if four of us are very, very high on a book and four people hate it, then that sort of tells me, well, 50% of readers might fall in love with the book. Whereas if six out of eight are lukewarm about it, it tells me that 80% of people who read the book are going to be lukewarm. So that's not good enough, even if, even if the total likes might add up to the same. Because you need a book that's going to come to the top of the bookseller's pile. It's going to come to the top of the reviewer's pile. It's going to come to the top of the reader's pile. So in these bigger independent publishers, the collaboratively formed judgments were significant and often the editorial team would then pass on their judgments to the chief editors or publishers who made the final decision. So here we can see how the presence of other people in 
in making evaluative judgments is significant, whether we're talking about the judgments that we make when we're at a, a festival, at a concert and at an art gallery, when we're walking around with one or other person, or whether we're in a crowd or whether we're in a professional and institutional context, such as in, uh, at work in a publishing company. Another dynamic of the evaluative moment that I consider is the impact of location on the moment of evaluation. Again, a contextual aspect that is often neglected in the sociology of taste, which sometimes actually in an almost Kantian mode assumes that, people, that there's a neutrality to the ways in which we listen to something as though everything, the ways in which we engage with cultural objects is as though we're in these ideal art gallery conditions. And in actual fact, listening to an interpret interpretation of a particular piece of music that is blasted forth from speakers in a carefully prepared, comfortable and warm room in isolation, in familiar environment with candles lit, can, in can enable an intense engagement with a cultural object that might sway our judgments more favorably than if we're listening to the same piece of music in a very different environment. But again, it's worth remembering that the cultural object has its own force. And however nicely prepared the location, a poorly written novel is likely to meet with, a critical, with critical resistance in a candlelit room, just as much as it is in an austere, windswept railway waiting room. So we can consider the impact of location on the moment of evaluation. We can consider familiarity, comfort, hostility, austerity, the element of surprise when we're walking down the street and we suddenly encounter some music or some performances of some kind and how the, the element of surprise might impact on our evaluation, on the judgments that we make about it. And of course, again, it's worth emphasizing that in public contexts, we often have very little choice about the cultural objects that are put before us, whether we're talking about advertising billboards and the visual things that we see as we walk around a city, or when we're thinking about the annoying music that might be played in the shops that we walk into, that we have no choice over hearing. We have no choice, but we might nevertheless be making judgments about not liking it, finding it annoying. Another dynamic of the evaluative moment that I argue is important is to consider the qualities of the cultural object. So these, again, are often neglected in the sociology of taste, where things are reduced to categories of whether they're considered to be uh, prestigious or legitimate or whether, you know, and, and the sort of social power dynamics that go with consuming these particular cultural objects. But, of course, the qualities of a cultural object impact on the ways in which we engage with them. If, as Hennian argues, we open ourselves up to cultural objects, then they open themselves up to us. And as Tia de Nora says in her analysis of music, the specific properties of music may contribute to or colour the shape and quality of social experience, perception and emotion. And these properties reach out to us and move us, sometimes literally, and they make us, to, they force the question, do we like this do we, or do we not like this? And Janet Wolfe talks about how when we're returning to beauty, when we're considering whether McHenry's paintings are any good or not, we are again returning to the formal properties of the paintings looking at the lines, looking at the colours. So the material, the qualities of the cultural object are important to consider when we're formulating a sociology of evaluation. So we've considered some of the various dynamics of the evaluative moment that might affect our judgments. But now I'm going to turn to some of the findings of my empirical work that you'll find detailed in two of the articles that I've put forward for the key readings, but also in some of the other pieces too that are on the reading list. So what kinds of evaluative judgments are there? On what basis do we make 
uh, judgments. And I'm quite interested to explore the various dimensions of evaluative judgments. And these include the aesthetic dimensions when we're looking at the specific properties of the cultural object. They include the ethical dimension when we're drawing on reasons that are external to the object. So we might be drawing on um, uh, political or ethical uh, judgments why we, uh, as to find out reasons why we like or don't like something. I'm also going to be looking at the temporal dimension, so how our, how our judgments play out over time. And these things, especially when we're looking at the aesthetic and the ethical, you know, how do you disentangle them? Well, you can't always disentangle them. These things can be at best perhaps be treated, uh, as Weber would say, as ideal types, um, as as conceptual abstractions. You know, in in reality, uh, they help us to, they help us to make sense of the complexity of reality. Because when it comes down to it, it's often hard to you know to precisely disentangle the various aspects of, of the judgments that we make. So. I'm going to start off by talking about the aesthetic dimension of evaluative judgments. When things are appraised on the basis of aesthetic criteria. So how can we do this? Well, in my, as you'll see in my, in my articles on Marston Anonymous and on the literary publishers, I draw attention to what I'm calling field-specific aesthetic criteria, which, um, which is when critics or or, or, or uh, amateurs in the sense of all of us, um, when we evaluate cultural objects on the basis of the criteria um, that accord with a cultural or artistic field and the current state of play in that field. And here I'm, I'm using Bourdieu's notion of field as a structured space, a field of forces, a false field. So society uh, and indeed culture is divided up into a number of fields. So the field of popular music, the field of cinema and so on. So just to give you a concrete example of this, the, in my analysis of the reviews of Mast and Anonymous, the film starring Dylan, um, the reviews draw, uh, I, I, I highlighted how Dylan is perceived to fail in terms of film-specific field, um, uh, field-specific criteria in this, uh, film-specific aesthetic criteria, how he is deemed to fail in relation to the state of play in the field of cinema in terms of direct, the direction of the film, the acting in the film, the plot in the film, the script and so on. So, for example, according to most of the critics, it was simply a bad film, a redolent mess, a, the biggest waste of talent, an enervating wreck, an unholy, incoherent mess. These were some of the of, of the, the, the the judgments made about the film, but they were based uh, mainly on the extent to which. Dylan failed to meet the field-specific aesthetic criteria in the field of cinema, so the direction was perceived to be bad. The scenes were stitched together with no overall sense of plot or purpose. Um, comparisons are made to the ways in which Dylan, in the course of his songwriting, draws together various disconnected elements, but in the, in the case of the film, it weaves together and plays like a parody of a bad Dylan song. The screenplay is deemed to be poor, um, high-flying poppycock, incomprehensible dialogue. The writing consists of incoherent, raving, juvenile meanderings, overburdened by endless self-important chatter and a pervading sense of ennui. So Dylan's acting is deemed to be wooden. He could easily have been replaced by a piece of wood with his face pointed on it, said one critic. So, according to another, Dylan shambles through his lines and walks around as if the camera were causing him physical pain. So these, there was a remarkable degree of consensus. The direction of the film was bad. The screenplay was poor or incoherent the acting wasn't very good um, but not only that but the film didn't in any way contribute to what's going on in the state or 
you know, the state of play in contemporary cinema. So if only the critics propose Marston Anonymous, the same project with all these amazing A-list actors, if only it had been left in the hands of critically acclaimed independent film directors such as John Sayles or Robert Altman, or if it had attempted to sketch out philosophical monologues in the manner of Richard Linklater. So, so the film was panned on the basis of field-specific aesthetic criteria. That's not the whole story. I'll come back to that article again in a moment. But that's an example of field-specific aesthetic criteria. And actually, interestingly, the, the music critics liked the film in many instances, because it adhered to many of the things that they found appealing in relation to their field, so that, that so some of the music in the film, that the ways that the script were was compared to Dylan's innovative use of lyrics. Um, so, so their field-specific aesthetic criteria, and I found a similar thing looking at field-specific aesthetic criteria when I was interviewing the literary publishers. So they, they, they found, they talked about the extent to which when they were assessing manuscripts and deciding what to publish, they found that field-specific aesthetic judgments of the publishers were assess assessing the extent to which the manuscripts innovate by contributing to the conversation, to the state of play in the field at that particular moment. So as Maria, a publisher in the UK says, for me, what's really important is that the work is distinctive and not trying to do something that other people are not doing. And trying to do something, sorry, that other people are not doing. I'm interested in people who are trying to push the boundaries in their own ways. And I don't mind if it's experimental and if it fails sometimes. So another talks about, uh, I have certain, Sir David, a publisher in the UK, I have certain prejudices in favour of highly vocalic poetry. For example, a love of parataxis and a slight resistance to hypotaxis. I like inactive poetry and dislike merely descriptive poetry. I guess I avoid gushing poetry, poetry which foregrounds an irritating I, poetry in which formal principles are not evident after a few lines. So here again, we see these criteria that the, crit that the uh, publishers are drawing on in deciding what they want to publish or not. Um, so, you know, this particular publisher doesn't want to publish anything that is gushing. A normal love story is out of bounds. Um, so here we have some criteria that are very much based in what is going on in the field of literature. They want something that is distinctive, that is contributing to the conversation, that actually is experimenting with language in the ways in which those at the forefront of the literary field are doing. So these are field-specific aesthetic criteria. So it's stylistic through formal innovation. As, as another publisher says, a new poet should speak with their own voice. So you're not looking for a poet like other people. You're looking for somebody who isn't like other people, but who speaks, who writes with a new and fresh poetic voice in their own style and has something to say that is their own in a well-developed, mature voice. So it's about formal innovation, about contributing to the conversation. So there are two examples from the study of the use of film critics deploying and criticizing a film in relation to the extent to which it fails to meet the aesthetic criteria of the field. Uh, and then in the field of literary publishing, where innovation, formal innovation, contributing to the conversation is important. But they have in common the fact that they are drawing attention to aesthetic criteria. But another dimension of evaluative judgments is the ethical dimension. And here, when I'm theorizing this, when I'm making sense of what, for example, what the publishers are saying in the study that I've put on the reading list, I'm informed 
by Weber's notion of um, of value, rational social action. So I'm considering ethical. Uh, I think considering evaluative judgments that are rooted in an ethical dimension are are based on a kind of value rational social action which Weber says as an ideal type is determined by a conscious belief in the value for its own sake of some ethical aesthetic religious or other form of behavior independently of its prospects of success along similar lines uh, Boltanski and Tevenu um, draw attention to what they call the civic order of worth, where individuals give up their particular interests and direct themselves towards a common good. So Boltanski and Tevenu, they identify six orders of worth, civic, market, industrial, domestic, inspiration and fame. And each of these orders of worth provides common constraints when individuals are engaged in dispute and they must base their arguments on strong evidence expressing in this way their will to converge towards the resolution of their disagreement and the civic order of worth a bit like Weber's value judgment is, is rooted more in an ethical orientation towards the common good. And I've seen examples of this in the in the evaluative judgments made by literary publishers when they're considering which manuscripts to publish. So take an example for, of one which was aesthetically deemed uh, a, an author whose manuscripts were aesthetically deemed to contribute to the conversation. They were exemplary in terms of field-specific aesthetic criteria, but this particular author had a very dubious personal life and was actually a sex offender and had been arrested for being a sex offender. So what happened is the publishers had to have a conversation about whether or not to publish this work. So that on the one hand, they're saying, well, look, you know, this is, this is a great piece of literature. It contributes to the conversation in terms of formal innovation it's exemplary but yet on the other hand they had the ethical concerns that they don't want to be associated with an author who has committed some atrocious acts so to quote from the publisher we had we have had these long conversations about what to do with this book my colleague's view is that we still read tolstoy and people who 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 read lots of authors who, who do terrible things. Shouldn't we still support the availability of the work, whatever we think about the person who wrote it? But, but I feel differently about it. So I've said I've taken this work off the list. We're not going to distribute it anymore because I don't want to have any kind of exchange with him. So here we see a clear example of the ethical dimension of evaluative judgments where that is coming to the fore in the reasoning. So for the sake of the common good, for the sake of the reputation of the publisher, not wanting to publish the work of somebody who has done some terrible things. But we also see these kinds of judgments being made by publishers in other contexts when addressing the fact that, as, as one other publisher says, an avant-garde poetry publisher says, because of whatever kind of cis-hetero circles I inevitably move in, if I allowed, if I just publish what you know the, the very best things that I got, or just if I didn't make any action to to kind of remedy or rectify this, I would just be publishing a list of entirely white male authors because everything I get is submitted by men. So here we see an example of the fact that this particular author is trying to intervene, make an intervention, and many of the authors I was talking about were at least troubled by, you know, even if they weren't doing much about it, they were troubled by the fact that the, the, the range of, of books that they were publishing, um, that, most, that there was a predominance, especially in the avant-garde circles, of books of authors who were white males, and there was a considerable lack of diversity. So making a judgment, an active judgment, as some publishers have done to actively go out their way to find authors from minority ethnic backgrounds um, 
this is a way of making an ethical judgment, if you like, or a value rational judgment when deciding what they want to publish. Um, and there were some there were some interesting conversations that came about with the publishers on on the basis of this, because of course, as I say, it's it's hard to disentangle the ethical from the aesthetic entirely. For example, one publisher who specialises in Caribbean fiction related how um, one particular book had only sold a few hundred copies, but had made an enormous difference in the field because all the key authors in that field read the book. Uh, and the publisher was also going um, now starting to ter- finding that that field was dominated by male authors and was now um, also starting to publish, for example, um, more women authors and also um, gay and lesbian fiction. But with the caveat that it still had to be up to the standards. So this this kind of process of identifying the aesthetic and, and ethical um, aspect and, and criteria by which judgments are made is, is not easy. And of course, it's worth pointing out that when I'm reading the reviews uh, in, in the first article or when I'm discussing with the publishers, then you know they're they're in many ways puff, making um, ha, uh, putting on a particular performance. The critics, of course, are earning their money by being critics. They're often being excessively flamboyant on putting forward their opinion forcefully, um, and the publishers also are, of course, putting on, in Goffman's terms, a, a front stage uh, performance to, to 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 show me that they are good publishers and and trying to do the best that they can, which is quite understandable. But these are examples of ethical and aesthetic value judgments. And as I say, in the very same review, when you look at reviews, you'll see examples of of both. So, um, you know, so for example, I've just got here a review um, of Bob Dylan's 2020 album rough and rowdy ways written by kitty empire and she 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 combines uh ethical and aesthetic aesthetic judgments in her articles some of them some of the judgments she makes or some of the observations she makes are based on field specific aesthetic criteria so for example she says um Rough and Rowdy Rays contains deep musical and lyrical erudition, witticisms and considerable panache. References abound to artists, songs and historical figures. On Murder Most Foul, his 17-minute broadside on the assassination of John F. Kennedy illusions a Crete as he widens his scope and lays out an alternative history of the 20th century in song. But... Uh, so, so here she's aware of Dylan's position in the field, the relation of his album to his other albums, to the state of play in the field, and his the intertext- use of intertextuality in his writing. But at the same time, she's sceptical of Dylan's gender politics and the gender politics of the album. She accuses him of drawing on a canon that is unimaginative, that includes Shakespeare, the classics, Beethoven, Chopin, Sherman, Montgomery, Scott, and uh, is what she refers to as he becomes mired in the, an unexamined position of high boomerism. She says that although Dylan has spoken of his respect for groundbreaking female creatives, um, there is precious little airtime afforded to women in this album's pantheon. Yes, we hear fleetingly of Anne Frank, Etta James and Stevie Nicks. On Murder Most Foul, Lee Harvey Oswald's infamous declaration, I'm a Patsy, opens the goal for a Patsy Klein name check, but the scales are weighted far, far in favour of all the old dudes. When women's names appear, very often they are the fictional creations of men. Names such as Mary Lou and Miss Pearl. So, um, and at the end, she 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 ends up by saying, uh, she ends up by saying, if rowdy, rough and rowdy ways has an overarching theme, it is the long, strange trip of the naked ape. 
If Dylan contains multitudes, as per the song of the same name, mankind's flaws are legion. These are magnificently dissected here, often with self-deprecation. It's a shame, though, that the agency, good and bad, seems to be reserved for men on what is still a great album by great artists. Sing your hearts out, you women of the chorus, husks Dylan on Mother of Muses. Aha. Uh-huh. So she ends with this note, this kind of double-edged um, bit of praise for Dylan, but also a slight bit of world-weary resignation on the basis of his gender politics and the gender politics of the album. So another dimension that I'm quite interested in um, takes us to perhaps where we can go forward with this debate, which is the temporal dimension, time. How does time work in relation to evaluative judgments? So this is another aspect of the debate that needs to be explored. You'll see I've, I've written a piece on aesthetics and time um, that is on the reading list further down. But I think that this is something that needs to be explored further, the temporal dimension of aesthetic and evaluative judgments. And I think that inequalities are central to this aspect of, of aesthetic judgment. So um, in, in, my, in my thinking about the temporal dimension of evaluative judgments, I argue that we need to consider um, with the stratification of social time in mind, uh, we need to consider two ideal typical types of engagement that basically correspond to our ability or otherwise to possess time. So when we think about, um, so, so for example, um, Chatsyachari and Arba distinguish between pure time, free time, free from the need to perform secondary activities and contaminated time, where domestic chores or childhood duties spill over into free time. And they find that whereas high-earning males have very little free time during the working week, they have greater control over when they work. And, and for example, they're freed up at weekends than low-skilled workers who are more likely to do shift work during unsocial hours. So we might find that high-earning males are more likely than low-skilled workers to find the time for sustained aesthetic engagement. And I distinguish between two types of aesthetic engagement, sustained aesthetic engagement and distracted aesthetic engagement. And these are both based on the ability to possess time, to take your time. And of course, that is highly stratified. Stratified. Of course, we all have time occasionally to engage in both of these. And I would argue that distracted aesthetic engagement is actually the type of engagement that we indulge in most frequently. But first of all, sustained aesthetic engagement refers to the temporal mode that we adopt when we decide to engage with a painting for a while, when we lose track of time, when we get engrossed in a film, when we have the, have the time to ab get absorbed in a novel, when we contemplate things, when we are able to fully immerse ourselves in this kind of aesthetic engagement. And as as I say, as you ascend the social scale, one is more likely to have the time for engagement in this sustained mode. Distracted aesthetic engagement is, 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 is quite different. So um, this enables us to see that many of our engagements with cultural objects take place in an absent-minded manner producing a series of micro-evaluations. -evalua and these might seem meaningless when considered in isolation, but they gain significance as part of wider patterns. So distracted modes of aesthetic engagement, this is something that we do when, for example, we're walking down the street, when we're in an art gallery and we're also listening to headphones and we're looking from one painting to another, when we're flicking through the pages of a magazine, when we're watching different television channels flicking around when we're on, on the internet, when we're on our playlists. So this is more likely to be 
the dominant mode of aesthetic engagement in modern times in everyday life uh so so i think that it's it's important to consider the temporal dimensions of the aesthetic engage of, of our aesthetic engagement and of our evaluative judgment because attention to the distracted mode of aesthetic engagement enables us to see that we might not even be fully conscious fully or consciously aware that we are evaluating um and this draws attention to to the fact that in our evaluations you know just there's often an assumption that we either love something or hate something like or dislike but often things fall in between we're indifferent to things just as much as uh, we're passionate about things so more than often the evaluative judgments we make in banal everyday situations are likely to be characterized by relative indifference towards the objects so we might consider object a mildly interesting object b moderately worthy of our attention we might not really care for c that we have just read although we might admit that d is fairly written as is e it is certainly not up there alongside object f which sets our pulses racing and our minds afire so i argue that it's important to consider who has the time to you know to to engage in a sustained aesthetic in in forms of a sustained aesthetic engagement um and this is highly stratified so those of us who are working long hours who have childcare responsibilities less control over our social calendar are less likely to be able to regularly engage in sustained forms of aesthetic engagement but there's a second aspect a second aspect of the temporal dimension that i'm interested in when considering how when considering evaluative judgments and that is how do evaluative judgments play out over time so how do evaluative judgments play out over time this i think is something of an unresolved issue for sociology and for a sociology of culture so i am interested in exploring this temporal dimension how evaluative judgments play out over time some of the publishers i spoke to spoke about this in a more modest way about how they put a manuscript in the drawer for a few days and then returned to it so here we have a more modest example of how over time they are able to assess uh, the worth of a cultural object but i'm talking about something bigger here the accumulation of evaluative judgments which i'm i'm starting to conceptualize as a supra individual voice which towers over each individual even though each one of its contributes to its development because there is after all a ceaseless and ongoing process of evaluation in the in each cultural field and in wider popular discourse and wider public discourse this is crystallized in the form of institutional cultural capital and people are given awards and people are given titles and prizes but it also takes shape in the everyday utterances of members of the public and fans as they generate best of lists and and write blogs and make entries online about what they like and what they don't like so no doubt there are considerable inequalities in who has the ability to make their evaluation count but nevertheless there is in the course of this an accumulation of evaluative judgments and here i'm taking inspiration from the classical social theorist george zimmel's notion of objective culture which he refers to as the labor of countless generations embedded in language and custom in literature and technology as an objectified spirit that is the accumulation of everybody's activities but from which no single individual is able to exhaust so everyone contributes to it but no single individual is able to actually uh exhaust it and use it they can everyone can take as much as it as they wish to or are able to but no single individual can exhaust it all so objective culture towers above us as an accumulation of knowledge and i'm thinking that evaluative judgments there's something similar going on there that there's a super individual voice which towers 
above each individual and we all contribute to its development even though as i've said there is great disparity in who is able to have the authority to make some of these judgments stick and i'm going to illustrate this finally as a final point with a with a modest example from one of the articles i've got you to read and here again bob dylan is the is the case study that I'm using in this podcast. So I'm referring again to the film Masked and Anonymous that Dylan starred in, which is referred to by film critics as quite simply a bad film, described as a redolent mess, the biggest waste of talent, an enervating wreck, an unholy, incoherent mess, and a strong contender for the worst movie of the century. So in my analysis of 76 reviews, I found that the critics were largely hostile to, to, to the film and their criticisms were based on field-specific aesthetic criteria. The film was not aligned with the state of play in the cinematic field, the direction, the screenplay, the acting, the script were deemed to be wanting, to were poor. Interestingly, Marston Anonymous was warmly received back in the field of popular culture because its aesthetic properties aligned with the state of play there and served to augment the perceived significance of Dylan's creative output. So some of the popular music critics, for example, likened Masked and Anonymous to one of Dylan's songs, saying it was full of creative wordplay and so on. But the point I want to get round to making is, the, is that even as the film critics dismissed Marston Anonymous, even in the most caustic one-star reviews, they highlighted the value of music and songwriting in the film. I noted here that the aesthetic value that has accrued over time to Dylan's songwriting that's come about through countless evaluative judgments made by various critics and members of the public, this was very much present in the reviews. It proved to be lurking in the background of even the most hostile reviews. So even the critics that gave the film one star or zero star, they couldn't help but refer to Dylan's genius or, or, or marvel at his creative output or comment on how good the music or the songs were in the film, even if the film itself was not good. So this is an example of how an accumulation of evaluative judgments, a super-individual voice, was lurking in the background of even the most hostile reviews. So I think this example tells us something about evaluative judgments and how they play out over time. So hopefully that's been interesting to you, and I've got some discussion points for you to go away and think about, having listened to this podcast and having read the key readings. So why do you think sociologists have a tendency to put aside questions of value and evaluative judgments, leaving them to other disciplines? Discuss the ways in which you evaluate cultural objects. Consider the various dynamics that affect your evaluations. Provide an outline of the various dimensions of evaluative judgments discussed in, the work, in my work that I've discussed today whether ethical, aesthetic, or temporal. Provide an outline of Wolf's argument, of Janet Wolf's argument for an aesthetics of uncertainty. How might that come about? How might that be deployed? And finally, consider what insights are offered in the articles and chapters that you have read on the relation between culture and inequality. I've also set an activity for you to do. So find a review of a cultural object. So just like I did with the Kitty Empire review of rough and rowdy ways, find a review, for example, of a film, a television program, an album, a book, in broadcast media or an online forum. So what field-specific aesthetic criteria are being deployed in the review? What kinds of evaluative judgments are deployed by the critic, by the blogger? You know, for example, are these... Ethical judgments, aesthetic judgments, what basis and what basis are they made? To what effect? What assumptions are made about what is good and bad? So my name is Simon Stewart. I've been talking about evaluative judgments. 
Perhaps the main takeaway point from this session is that is to not think just about our tastes, why we like what we like, but the basis on which we make our judgments, our evaluative judgments in the moment, over time, with and against others. The next podcast in the Culture and Inequality module produced by our Transnational Teaching Podcast Collective is beyond the Euro-American culture bubble. So be sure to check that out. Hope you've enjoyed listening. Take care.